4, Hebrews chapter 4, and, um, and we'll jump in at verse number 1 tonight, Hebrews 4, and verse number 1, and um, amen. I'll tell you what, let's back up to verse 19. I don't have 19 on the slide right here in front of me, but verse 19, the thought continues into chapter 4. It says, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith, in those who heard it, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Now, Jesus introduced us to this word rest. When I say introduced us, that's really not accurate. We see that it was spoken of in the Psalms. David spoke of the Psalm in, in the Psalms of God's rest, and, and that was in many ways prophetic. It was speaking of a day that was to come, and we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God ever meant or intended by the word rest. Jesus said in Matthew, the 11th chapter, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you a rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me come alongside you. Learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. But this chapter in Hebrews is considered to be the, I guess, um, grand central station for what the Bible has to say about rest and the importance of rest and, and what it really means and what it really looks like. Now, to simply define it, we said that rest is when you enjoy the fruit of someone else's labor. It's when somebody else does the work and then you come in at the last minute and enjoy the benefits enjoy even the rewards, the celebrations. And so when we talk about rest, this particular passage talks about different kinds of rest. It talks about the rest that Adam and Eve entered into after God worked six days in creation. It talks about the rest that was made available to the children of Israel but the first generation didn't enter into it all, and the next generation entered into only in limited degree. But again, it was God who did the work to get them out of Egypt. And then this passage, these 11 verses, also talk about a rest that was made available for you and me from the foundations of the world. And this is talking about the rest that is available for us tonight because of the work that Jesus has done on our behalf. Or as I like to say, the completed work of Jesus. Jesus' sinless life, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension back to Father's right hand. He did every bit of that, not just for you, but he did it as you. So that we could enjoy now in this life, not just in heaven, two misconceptions that need to be removed from our minds about rest. The first one is that rest means doing nothing or being lazy. That's not rest. Matter of fact, if, if you take someone who, who is, you know, really understands what it means to live a productive and meaningful life, um, you, they'll say things like, 
you know, doing nothing is driving me crazy. We were not created by God to lay around and do nothing. Amen or me? That's the truth, right? And so we weren't designed for that, and so there's, there's, there's no rest in laziness, and that's not what he's talking about. The second misunderstanding about rest and what people think about is rest is they think of rest in peace, the rest that someone enters into once they die, or, you know, the rest that's in heaven. Now, don't misunderstand me. Heaven is a place of rest. It's a place of eternal rest. But again, you know, we, we have this kind of mindset of just everybody floating around on clouds doing nothing. And, and of course, we know that's not the case. That's not what the Bible teaches us about rest. So rest, again, is you and me entering into what Jesus has accomplished for us. Jesus fought and fought hard for you and me. And he took care of some things for you and me. So that we would not have to fight for those things the way he fought for them. The, the victory that he earned with blood, we can now experience, not by shedding blood, but by faith. He didn't just wish away our sin. He didn't just wave some spiritual magic wand and say, sin be gone. He became your sin. He became your sin. All the shame, all the guilt, all the agony. Your sin, when he became it, your sin separated him from his father. Literally. Genuinely. Absolutely. You understand what I'm saying? Really, it really did. This, in other words, this, this didn't you know, happen like on some soundstage somewhere and it was like Jesus acting something out or going through the emotions. All of this was, was, was real. The pain was real. The nails were real. The blood was real. The spear was real. The thorns were real. All of that was, was, was right there. And he bore every bit of that. He became your sin so that you could become his righteousness. But listen to me tonight. You don't have to shed blood to be made righteous. You have to believe in the one who shed his blood, who did the heavy lifting for you. That's rest. That's rest. And the Bible says that we enter into that rest by faith. The generation that came, that, that uses an example for us to follow, the generation that came out of slavery in, um, in Egypt, the Bible says they never did enter into the rest that God had for them, the rewards, the benefits, all the hard work. I know we think, well, it's, it's God, Pastor Mark. I mean, he, he does great things with little effort. That's rest. That's rest. But there was a whole lot of effort that went into extracting God's people from slavery in Egypt. Also that they could, by faith, enter into their promised life in their promised land. But the Bible says they fell short of that. They fell short of what God had worked so hard on their behalf to make available to them. And he says that we cannot follow that same example of unbelief. Now, as I said last week, we're trying to connect a lot of verses together. And sometimes, you know, you talk about one thing, and then we talk about another thing, and we lose sight that those things are actually meant to go hand in hand. So I'm going to ask you to jump 
with me now to, we're going to come back to verses 1 and 2, but I want you to jump with me now to verses 14 and 15. Because he says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, there is a connection here, and maybe you saw it decades ago. I'll be honest with you, I missed it for years and years and years. And many times as I've read and taught from these verses, I believe the Holy Spirit made it jump off the page. And that's why I'm so excited about explaining it to you and teaching it to you because there's a connection here in all of this that we need to understand. And it's found with this word or in this word in verse 15, weaknesses. Weaknesses. This word weaknesses is speaking of our inability to get results. And I would just about guarantee you that every person in this room tonight has something going on in your life that you need some kind of result in. I mean, not just like, well, you know, it'd be nice to have this or not. No, no I'm, I'm talking about like some issue, some problem, some dilemma, some, some, maybe some diagnosis, maybe some financial issue, I, whatever. It's, it's something that you've tried and you've, you've been concerned about and you've, you've you know, worked at and, and put effort towards or what have you, but still no results. He's talking about weaknesses here. The Bible says that there are all kinds of things when it comes to just human beings alone that are impossible. That's, it, it, it'll never happen. It can never be accomplished. But what's impossible with men is now possible with God. And so he says this, all things are possible to him who believes. To him who believes. So when he's talking about rest, He's talking about you by faith entering into what's been done for you, contrasting that to what you can never accomplish without God in your own efforts, the weaknesses, the inability to get the result, the inability to quit doing the thing you, want to, you know you've got to quit doing. The inability to change the thing about yourself that you want so desperately to change. And we can just go on and on and on with this, okay? This is inward, outward, personal, circumstance, situation, condition, what have you. Now, I'm not going to go down this road too far, but, but last week we said that it's those weaknesses that create frustration and then aggravation. I never gave you the definition for frustration last week. I'm going to put it on the board on the overhead. Frustration, by definition, is a feeling of dissatisfaction often accompanied by anxiety or depression, resulting from unfulfilled needs or unresolved problems. Do you see inability to get results in this? Weaknesses. Inability to get results. And notice what is the result of these unfulfilled needs, unresolved problems. 
a feeling of dissatisfaction, often accompanied by anxiety, worry, stress, fear, and then depression. The Bible says anxiety in the heart of man causes depression. And depression continues to increase at almost epidemic levels in our society today. I have heard people refer to depression now, which in times past was obviously recognized as, as a problem in people's lives. But now it has become so common and so prevalent that it's referred to as the common cold of mental illness. Depression. Why are people depressed? They're depressed because of dissatisfaction, discontentment, anxiety. Why are people so dissatisfied? Why are people so discontented? Why are people so stressed, right? That leads them to depression because of their inability to get results. Because of their inability to change what needs to be changed, resolve what needs to be resolved, stop what needs to be stopped, do what needs to be done. I gave you this example last week. I'm going to give it to you again this week. You can try and struggle the rest of your life to try to make yourself right before God in the eyes of God and never, ever, ever succeed at it. You will never be able to produce that result on your own. But the Bible says if you will submit yourself to the righteousness that has been given to you, that has been provided for you, that's where you will enter into the rest, the fruits of Jesus' labor on your behalf. But notice now, faith is how we enter into that. Faith is how we enter into that. We said that in addition to our inability to get results, we see that people not only are frustrated, but they're also aggravated. And aggravation by definition, and obviously we could go much longer definitions, but really three words I think capture it. Um, annoyance, irritation, exasperation. I mean, just people live with just, just annoyed. They just, and the least little thing, you know, sets them off. And, and then just a constant source of irritation. You ever, like, you get, especially if you wear shoes with no socks sometimes, and you get a little rocker, a little something in there, something sharp. Man, it just starts irritating, irritating. It's like, man, I gotta get this out but it's, it's like the rock in your shoe that you can't get out. It's just a constant source of irritation. And the, and the enemy takes that inability to get results, and he just, just you know, I mean, he just, he just keeps poking at it and poking at it and poking at it, right? And it just becomes a constant source of irritation, a constant source of annoyance, and it leads to exasperation. Exasperation is when... You, know, you just, we, Mike has said it this way, you're just at the end of your rope. You just don't know where else to turn, what else to do. Now, I really wish that we were talking about a rare thing that some human being is frustrated and aggravated, but the, the problem is we're not talking about a rare thing. Many, many people on planet Earth call this kind of life normal. They call this kind of life normal. Now, from this, and I know this may be simple tonight, but the Holy Spirit told me to give it to you just like this, okay? So I'm going to give it to you just like this, right? There are many people who love to talk about life, and they use this example. They say, well, you know, life is hard. 
Anybody ever heard that expression? Life is hard. Life is hard. And I, and I hear a lot of born-again believers saying that. You know, just making that kind of confession over themselves. Life's hard. Well, you, and we use that, we use that to try to somehow soothe these feelings of frustration and aggravation in our lives. And it's like, well, you know, life's hard. You just need to get over it, right? This is what the Holy Spirit told me to tell us tonight, okay? He said that life outside of faith is hard. Life is not hard if you live the way God created you to live, which is he created us to not walk by sight but by faith. So when we hear people say life is hard, or if you've ever said that before, or if you're ever tempted to say it again, it's my prayer that the Holy Spirit would correct you and that you would be correctable because life is not hard. Life outside of faith is hard. Trying to do life apart from faith is hard. It's extremely frustrating. It's extremely aggravating. It, it, it is, it is it, because again, outside of faith, you can't get the results in life that God, not just that you desire, that God desires for you and for me to have. Now, let's go back to um, verse number two. Hebrews chapter four. He says, a promise remains of entering his rest. That's verse one. When he says it remains, he's going to use that same word remains um, again if you have I don't have slides I got them but I don't want to find them take the time to find them if you got a Bible open look down at verse number 8 for if Joshua had given them rest then he would not afterward have spoken of another day there remains therefore a rest for the people of God so notice he says it again and this is strategic okay because if you're not familiar with the story that he's referring to here, when God brought the first people out of Egypt, Bryce Hankins answered this for me. He brought them out so that he could do what, sir? He brought them out so he could bring them in. He brought them out of slavery in Egypt so that he could bring them in to the promised land. But if you know what happened, that first generation did not enter into their rest. And it wasn't because God didn't want them to. It wasn't because God wasn't big enough. It was because they could only enter into that rest by faith. Life got very hard for them. But it wasn't because God, remember he says, come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden. Come unto me all you who are making life harder than it ought to be and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me and you will find rest for your souls. Even that expression has a faith connotation to it because it's one thing for him to give you rest it's another thing for you to experience and enjoy it there's a lot of people who have been given rest by God but they are not experiencing and enjoying it in the same way that that promised land belonged to them but they never experienced it and enjoyed it they never entered into it by faith are you following this it's important so he wants to make sure that we understand because we know that after Moses died, God raised up Joshua and Joshua was able to lead that next generation across the Jordan River and into the Canaan land or into the promised land. But even then, they didn't fully experience what God had. But he was wanting 
to make sure that we didn't misunderstand that second generation entering into rest for what he meant when he said earlier, there remains a rest. You think, well, yeah, there remains a rest, but that second generation found it. He says, no, no, there remains a rest for the people of God even above and beyond what Joshua was able to lead people into an experience of. He's talking about our rest. Come on now. He's talking about our rest. The rest that Jesus did all the work for us to have and enjoy. Verse 2 is such an important passage because it's a passage that gets us down to the nitty-gritty, all right? And what I mean by the nitty-gritty is he says, For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Don't, don't let, especially if you were like raised in denominational church, sometimes we hear that gospel, we think the gospel of salvation. It just simply means the declaring or proclaiming of good news. So the good news that was declared or proclaimed to them was the good news that God brought them out to bring them in, that God was bringing them out of slavery in Egypt and going to carry them all the way into their best life and their best place. That was what was told to them, and they fell short of that rest. Now, the gospel to you and me is not that we're free from slavery in Egypt. The gospel for you and me is that we've been free from the slavery of sin. Not that we've been freed from the rule of Pharaoh, but that we've been freed from the rule of the devil. Not that we have uh, a pretty nice place to live on the other side of the Jordan River, but that we have the kingdom of God given to us and within us. And I could go on and on and on, but again, what belongs to you tonight because of who you are in Christ Jesus. So when he says the gospel was preached to them, he's talking about the good news that Moses explained to them, proclaimed to them from God. Now he's talking about the good news of not just our salvation, but all that it means now to be an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus. That's the gospel that has been preached to us. But although those things are different, the required response remains the same. Faith. They did not benefit, profit, is what the Bible, the word that's used here, what's translated in the New King James. The gospel that was preached to them did not profit them Last week we looked at what all that means. It means it did not increase them. It did not give them an advantage. It did not um, advance them. Um, it, it provided no usefulness for them. It provided no improvement in their lives or condition. It provided no growth for them. It provided no help for them. Wow. Now, if their gospel had advantage, if their gospel had help, if their gospel had benefit, if their gospel had um, advantage, or you understand what I'm saying, how much more does ours, since ours is such a better gospel? But in the same way that they came short of ever enjoying or experiencing what their gospel would have produced in their lives had they responded to it by faith, in the same way, we can miss out on everything. Listen to me now, not just everything that Jesus bought and paid for, but if you're born again, everything that's already yours. 
Just because they never enjoyed the promised land doesn't mean the promised land wasn't theirs. It was theirs the whole time. They just lived their whole lives and never experienced it. They just lived their whole lives and never enjoyed it. They just lived their whole lives and missed out on it. It's very sad to me that there are many, many born-again believers who will be in heaven one day when they die, but they're missing out on the rest that God has for them to enjoy this side of heaven. And they're missing out on it for the same reason that example is presented for you and me, the same reason, unbelief. Amen, Romy. Now, one of the really important questions that we need to ask ourselves is, what does it mean to mix faith with the gospel? What does it mean? Because that was where they, in other words, when I say the nitty-gritty, rubber meets the road. Differences in the doing. Come on now, differences in the doing. Thank God for hearing but a hearer only has not profited at all. Right? Don't be a hearer only, but be a doer of the word. So what is it that we need to do? What is it that I need to do? What is it that you need to do, practically speaking, to mix faith your faith, the faith that God's given to you, Hebrew, uh, Romans 12 and 3. What is it that you need to do on a practical level to mix faith with the gospel, the good news of God's rest and all that that means in order to enter into it in your own life? I wish me telling you about it was enough. I wish that all you had to do in order to enter into rest is to hear somebody like me tell you about it. Now, you hearing it is extremely important, but hearing it alone is not enough. Did they hear the gospel? Did they hear? Yeah, they heard it. But they didn't mix faith with it and never entered into it. The reason the Bible says that being a hearer only is for you to deceive yourself, because you can hear about rest tonight, and leave out of here feeling better about your situation. But feeling better about your situation is not the same thing as entering into the rest that God has provided for your situation. We felt better about ourselves before, but it didn't take very much for the frustration and the aggravation, the anxiety, the depression to all just come rushing back in on us, right? So faith is how we enter into. Faith is how we enter into. So what, what exactly does that mean? Well, when Moses first came to his people and delivered this word, this, this I say delivered the, the word of deliverance, this message of deliverance that he, that he proclaimed to them, the Bible says they could not heed, H-E-E-D, heed the voice of God. It doesn't mean they couldn't hear it. They heard. Heed means to hear and respond. 
Heed means to hear it and then respond to it. They heard it, but there was no response. So that's why one of my favorite definitions of faith, and I like to simplify things. I'm not saying this is all there is to faith, but, but on a practical level, faith is your ability to respond to who God is and to what He has said concerning your life. His good news to you. But again, you've got to respond to it. Are you hearing me tonight? You've got to respond to it. You got to respond to it. It's about five different directions we could go from this point right here. Let, let's go back to. He brought them out so that he could bring them in. I've seen so many people over the years who would let the Lord help them get out of a desperate situation in their lives. But once they were out of that discomfort, once they were out of a situation, a hole that they couldn't dig their way out of, a, a, a dilemma that they couldn't you know, find any way to resolve on their own, so they finally at last cried out to God. God in his mercy helped them, got them out of the ditch, got them out of the hole, got them out of that situation. They're like, okay, thank you, God, for that help, and away they go. Never see them again. because they did not want to put in the necessary effort to go into their best life. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this. I'm not going to try to explain them all tonight, but listen to me, please. I've asked you this question different ways over the last several weeks. Okay, what did you do to be born? Nothing. What did you do to, you know, our, our parents gave birth to us. Our mothers gave birth to us. Right, we, we just, we came to on this planet about somewhere around four or five years old, right? I mean, three years old, whatever. What'd you do to be born again? Nothing. So, well, I called on the name of the Lord. Yeah, well, I mean, you follow what I'm saying. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. I don't think we want to talk about how hard it was to call on the name of the Lord, you know, in front of Jesus after all he did so that we could be saved. There's only so far God can carry you in life without your cooperation. The further Egypt got in their rearview mirror and the closer the promised land came to their windshield, the more cooperation God needed from his people. Did they have to take up a sword to get out of Egypt? were they going to have to take up a sword to lay hold of their best life in the promised land? Yes. Read it carefully. Yes. So when God in his mercy brought us out of being enslaved to sin, he did so so that we would then enter into a partnership with him, a cooperation with him as he trained us and taught us and, 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 and grew faith within us so that we could then lay hold of more and more and more of the rest that Jesus' work has made available for us. 
This is where people don't want to put in the effort. How do I say that? I'm not, I'm not trying to make this a negative. I'm certainly not here to fuss at you because you're here on a Wednesday night after working. A lot of you have been up since early, early, early this morning, long before daylight. I'm just trying to show you, though, that if we're going to have God's... I didn't, I didn't take up a sword for my salvation. Jesus fought that battle for me. But if I'm going to enter into the rest of my salvation, I am going to have to, you are going to have to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and learn how to fight the good fight of faith. That's why we didn't read the passage tonight, but if we had read them all, one of them says, from the King James Version, he says, we need to labor to enter the rest. <laughs> Wait a second now, work to enter rest. You could even, I think, put in there, fight to enter the rest. Fight to enter the rest. You say, well, that doesn't sound like rest to me. Well, what did God tell them before they fought? If you'll be strong and courageous, not back down, not cowered away, no enemy, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. I heard Brother Kenneth Hagin say this, right? Fight the good fight of faith. He said the only good fight is the one you win. Right? Football season's just around the corner. And, uh, and everybody talks about when Alabama won that national championship last January. Everybody said, man, that was the greatest game ever. Not till the last play. If you're an Alabama fan. Now, if you're a Georgia fan or an Auburn fan or whatever, that's a different story. But if you're an Alabama fan, that wasn't the greatest game ever until the last play. What made that battle so meaningful if you're an Alabama fan? That it ended in victory. Now, it's like every... You know, biting of the fingernails, every throwing of the pillow, every, you know, whatever. When it turns out to be a victory, it's like, yeah, right? So when he says, fight the good fight of faith, we actually enjoy a, a little tussle when we win it. Right? Our God's a conquering spirit. We were, we were created in his image and likeness. We were created to conquer. Not one another. I wasn't created to rule and reign over you. You were created to have dominion. I was created to have dominion, rule and reign in life. Be victorious. More than a conqueror. Always triumph. Something about victory, man. We were made for it. Not a person in this room enjoys losing. If you do, come see me. i got a counseling slot open at 1 tomorrow. Right? We don't enjoy losing because we weren't created to lose. We were created to win. And we're in a situation now where there's some things that we need to fight for. And the fight of faith is a good fight because the fight of faith always ends with a W. It always ends in victory. Amen? Praise God. Stand with me tonight. I think next Wednesday, and I'm a little reluctant to say this, but 
Did I mention discipleship class starts next Wednesday? Boy, am I excited about that. I hope you are. Be praying about that, please. I think next Wednesday, I started to get into it tonight, but it's going to take a little longer, I think, than, than we had really the time to, to finish tonight. And I want to try to get that in at least one segment. But listen to me, please. Be meditating on this. Be praying about this because there is such a powerful relationship between faith and the Word of God. Okay? Faith in the Word of God. Remember, the gospel, the Word, God's Word came to them, but they never mixed faith with it. Okay? So God's Word is coming to you and me tonight. We need to mix faith with it. We need to respond to it by faith. But here's the, here's the amazing thing. Romans 10 says that when we hear the Word, it arouses or awakens faith that's already inside of us. So notice now, we hear the Word, Faith awakens. We respond to the word. Faith is released. We, we hold fast our confession where the word is concerned. Right? Until we see the result produced in our lives. So there's this tremendous relationship, dynamic, if you will, between the faith that God has given to you and his word. Amen. Father, thank you tonight for your word. And thank you tonight, Father, that we're hearing your word, we're receiving your word, and your word is not just being hidden in our heart, Father, but it is, it is making us stronger and stronger in faith. It is awakening faith. It's arousing faith, faith by hearing, hearing by the word of God, hearing by the rhema, hearing by the inspired spoken word of God. Father, we're hearing it. It's stirring things up inside of us. It's activating things inside of us, Father. And we are now releasing the force of faith from our heart by the confession of our mouths, Father. Lord, we're not going to be like those who make a confession and then draw back, who make a confession and then start just speaking contradictory uh, words to it because it didn't happen you know, instantly. Father, we're going to hold fast that confession. Because this is how we overcome our weaknesses. This is how we are you, I guess I should say, Father, compensate, make the difference for the inability to get results on our own in our lives. It's faith that makes the difference. Father, it's my prayer that every person in this room would enter in to the rest that Jesus has made available to us by faith. Teach us what that means. Show us practical ways, Lord, today, tomorrow, this week, practical ways that we can mix faith with what we've heard by responding to you. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Praise God. Hey, did anybody notice the lights were on the pulpit tonight? No? It's been darkness in here. The, the, it was breakers that were thrown on one of the main lighting control panels back there, not the switch panel. Yeah, so thank God for that. I was, amen.